0: I remember being a teenager. All groups of teenagers have had this experience where you're sitting around and you say, okay, well, what's going to be the end of the world? Because we know the end of the world is coming and everybody's like well that's going to be another giant rock that comes from out of space that's done a pretty good job of wiping out lots of species previously in earth's history well it's going to be war you know nuclear war we're going to kill ourselves eventually both of these are really good guesses my position even as a teenager was oh it's going to be a pathogen (laughs) you know because i'm a biologist so i've seen you know, pandemic coming and potentially wiping us all out since I was a teenager. This is not going to be the last time it happens. It's going to happen again. I just hope that there's enough learning that we're better prepared.
1: What does it take for an idea to change the world? It turns out that having an idea and making a success of it are very different things. It's the difference between invention and innovation. And the path from one to the other is rarely a straight line. In this podcast series, we're looking at the people and stories behind world-changing ideas. Some of them you'll have heard of, some of them you won't. Sometimes it takes decades of work to create what looks like an overnight success. But telling these stories can illuminate how innovation really works in practice. I'm Tom Standage from The Economist, and this is Game Changers. Today we're looking at the story behind messenger RNA or mRNA, the technology that underpins the coronavirus vaccines made by Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech.
2: I believe this pandemic is our Sputnik moment.
3: It's been a tremendous team effort knocking
4: down Obstacle after
3: obstacle.
2: And just as Sputnik ignited the space age...
4: You're going to see vaccines for influenza, for HIV, for rabies. All of these things are coming down the path.
2: I believe the coronavirus can inspire a health age.
1: Hardly anyone had heard of mRNA when the pandemic began in early 2020. Then, at the end of that year, the results came in from the first trials of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines. The news broke while we were holding our weekly editorial meeting at The Economist. I remember it well, as does Natasha Loder, our health policy editor.
5: This story has gone down in company legend. And of course, we're all having our Monday Zoom meeting and the news comes over. Uh, the editor actually gets the news on her, her phone and she looks across the sort of Zoom meeting board and she says, Natasha, are you there? Is this any good? And I said, it's amazing. And she said, well, we better put it on the cover. I'm assuming you're going to bleep that out. (laughs) It was amazing at a number of levels. You know, we didn't know that mRNA vaccines were going to work at all. You know, we were so desperate for a vaccine that even something that was above 50% efficacy would have been great. And to have something that on a first attempt was that effective, it meant that people would really want this vaccine. Because if you're going to have the chance of having a vaccine over 90% effective, it's really going to be worth your while getting that protection.
1: This new vaccine and the Moderna vaccine that soon followed were not just highly effective, they'd been developed in record time, a few months rather than the years it usually takes to develop and test a vaccine. Derek Rossi, who had worried about pathogens as a teenager, later went on to co-found Moderna in
0: 2010. Literally, you know, after this SARS-CoV-2 sequence was published online by the Shanghai Consortia, the next day, you know, an mRNA was designed and 42 days later, there was a clinical-grade vaccine ready to go into patients. The speed with which that occurred is unprecedented in human medical history.
1: Immunologist Drew Weissman is another of the pioneers behind mRNA vaccines.
0: I sometimes joke that
6: had we taken five years to make a vaccine, they would have been screaming at us, what's taking so long? People are are getting sick.
1: But although it took just weeks to go from sequencing the virus to injecting people with the first trial vaccines, that turns out to be just one chapter in a much longer story.
6: People have to understand this isn't brand new technology. We've been working on this for 30 years.
1: And it's a story with a large cast of characters. Robert Langer is another co-founder of Moderna and a veteran of the biotechnology industry.
3: This goes back to things that uh, we did in drug delivery in the 70s. It goes back to work that people did on messenger RNA in the 80s, 90s. It goes back to work that all these companies did, Moderna and BioNTech.
1: So what is mRNA? How do you use it to make a vaccine? And what makes it such a game changer? Natasha Loder explains.
5: The idea of a vaccine is quite simple, which is that you kind of introduce the human body to a virus in a sort of non-dangerous way. Now, you can do that in a lot of different ways. You can break the virus into pieces and present pieces of that to the body. You can kill the virus and introduce that into the body. The oldest method that we have is where you inactivate a virus by weakening it.
1: But the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines work in a very different way. When mRNA molecules are introduced into the body, they turn the recipient's own cells into a drug factory. The mRNA is a recipe that tells the cells to manufacture
3: the vaccine. So the beauty of messenger RNA is rather than need an outside factory to make the protein, it enables you to have the cell be the factory. And so all you have to do is make a little bit of messenger RNA, put it into a nanoparticle, uh, inject it, and that can be done in a relatively short time. And that's a really powerful
1: technique that could be used for all sorts of things beyond vaccines and has huge potential in the future.
5: mRNA, and actually RNA therapeutics more generally, just could radically change the way that we treat literally every disease.
1: Let's go back a bit. Even if you don't know the exact details, you're probably familiar with the idea that there's DNA inside your cells, which defines your genetic makeup. So where does RNA fit in? Derek Rossi, co-founder of Moderna again.
0: Most people have heard of DNA. They understand that, you know, it contains the code of life. There's three billion letters that makes this code and there's segments of it that are genes. But What people don't realize is that DNA is actually a rather passive molecule, and the actual day-to-day business of cellular life, of all of life on planet Earth, is actually done by effector molecules called proteins. But in order for DNA to make the proteins, there's actually a necessary intermediate called messenger RNA. At this very moment, in every cell of your body, my body, every, everybody out there listening, we all have about 350,000 copies of mRNA in every single cell of our body. So I call it the trifecta of life. DNA makes mRNA, makes protein, makes life.
1: Natasha Loder has another way of thinking about mRNA that's a bit more... Game of Thrones.
5: The metaphor to sort of understand the immense potential of the messenger RNA is for you to imagine a castle. And this castle has a special workshop which makes everything that goes into making the castle, its windows, its doors, the food, the furniture. Now the instructions for making all this stuff are locked in a room in a tower And to get those instructions, you need messengers, and they have to run up to the locked room, make a copy of the recipe, and run back and take it to the workshop where the item is built. So here, your castle, is the human cell.
1: That room up in the tower is the nucleus of the cell, and the original copies of the instructions, safely locked away in that room, are the DNA. The messengers running up and down with the copies of the recipes are the messenger RNA. And the workshop, where the recipes get made into useful stuff, is called the ribosome. It's the machinery within the cell that turns recipes written in mRNA into proteins.
5: This is kind of fundamentally the kind of whole idea behind RNA therapeutics. It's about taking control of that workshop in the castle by essentially manipulating these messages.
1: Some therapies work by interfering with or silencing the mRNA messengers, basically tying them up or assassinating them on their way to the workshop so that particular undesirable proteins don't get made. Stopping a messenger with a recipe from getting through is one thing, but imagine if you could write your own recipes and then sneak them into the castle through a side door you'd be able to get the workshop to manufacture whatever you wanted. And that's what the coronavirus vaccines are doing. Derek Rossi again.
0: In the case of the pandemic, the mRNA that's being used in these vaccines carries the instructions to synthesize the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And it does that for a very clear reason, to alert your immune system to the spike protein so that You know, the next time you get exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, your immune system is already primed and prepped.
1: mRNA can be used to instruct cells to make any therapeutic protein, including vaccines. But getting all of this to work as a therapy depends on three things. First, you need to understand the language and the alphabet of mRNA. Then you need to be able to write messages or recipes using that alphabet in a way that does not attract suspicion. And then you need to be able to sneak them into cells reliably so that they'll be acted on. The first of those steps was taken 60 years ago.
0: mRNA was discovered to be the intermediate between DNA and proteins in 1961. In the intervening decades, Why wasn't it used by molecular biologists to express their favourite proteins? You know, we use DNA all the time, we use proteins all the time, but we're not using mRNA. And most molecular biologists would tell you, well, that's because it's so unstable, it gets degraded by these mRNA-degrading enzymes, these RNAs. That seemed unsatisfying to me.
1: Researchers had figured out how to create their own RNA messages, but when they tried introducing them into cells, the RNA was being recognised as foreign and broken down by the cell's defence mechanisms. Derek Rossi was one researcher who wanted to solve this problem, not to make vaccines, as it happens, but as part of his entirely different research into stem cells. But it wasn't
0: easy. When you're trying to introduce mRNA from the outside of the cell, you're bringing it in from a totally, you know, from the outside of the cell. That's not normally where it comes from. Nucleic acid coming in from the outside of the cell is usually something really bad coming in. Something really bad, like a virus, an invader, an enemy. These ancient antiviral pathways see that and say, hmm, this looks like a virus coming in, even though it's not. It's an mRNA, but it looks like a virus. And they activate these antiviral pathways which shut down protein translation, which is what you're trying to achieve. Actually, you're trying to make a protein. And in fact, if the, if the response is robust enough, the cell will commit altruistic suicide, it'll kill itself rather than let the virus come in and take over and make hundreds of thousands of copies of it. It's a, it's a good thing for the cell to do. So indeed, when we started working on this in 2008 and we started making mRNA and trying to inject it into cells, we killed a lot of cells in the dish. We realised that we were tripping these antiviral responses, so we went into the literature, and that's when we found the work of Drew and Kathy that had been published in 2005.
1: Drew and Katie are Drew Weissman and Katalin Carrico, two researchers who'd met at the University of Pennsylvania in the 1990s. Carico had been pursuing the idea of mRNA therapies since the 1970s and refused to give up. Weissman, for his part, was looking for new ways to make vaccines to fight HIV and other diseases. When I moved to
6: the University of Pennsylvania, I was interested in making vaccines. And that's where I ran into Katie Carrico at a copy machine. And we started talking together and decided to work together. And we became very interested in RNA and kept doing it.
1: But at the time, back in the late 1990s, the prospects for RNA therapies did not look particularly promising.
6: There were a couple of labs in the world who were working on RNA, and everybody else kind of said, well, you know, we're not really interested in it, it's, it's too labile, it's too difficult to work with, it'll never work. There was a general disinterest, and we would submit grants, we would submit papers, And they would say, yeah, interesting, but we're not interested. The initial problem that others and we ran into was that it was highly inflammatory. If you inject it into an animal to test, the animal gets sick. So we spent years figuring out how to get rid of that inflammation.
1: It's exactly the same problem that Derek Rossi from Moderna would later run into – when you put mRNA into a cell, it triggers a defensive immune response. But Drew Weissman and Catalin Carrico devised an ingenious way to get around it.
5: What they figured out was that there was part of the mRNA molecule that was alerting the immune system. And just by tweaking the structure of one of those molecules, it didn't do that. And so it was easier for the molecule to kind of sneak in without being recognised.
1: It all has to do with the genetic alphabet that DNA and RNA are based on. This alphabet contains just four molecular letters, A, C, G and T. In RNA, the T is replaced by a U, so then you've got A, C, G and U. Sequences of these four letters spell out the recipes for different proteins. But Weissman and Carico tried writing an RNA recipe using a slightly different kind of U, which is a molecule called uridine.
6: What Katie and I developed was modifying the uridine in the RNA. And what that did is it got rid of most of the inflammation.
1: Recipes written with this modified U could slip past the cell's defenses, but they would still be understood correctly by the protein making machinery of the ribosome.
6: We had bets going whether or not the RNA could be recognized by the ribosome. And we were surprised because not only was it recognized, but it made much more protein. Finally, in 2005, when we figured out how to get rid of its inflammation, at that point we knew it had enormous potential for vaccines, proteins, gene therapy, many different treatments for a lot of different diseases. We thought that would catch everybody's attention, but it didn't, nothing. We thought our phone would be ringing off the hook and everybody would be saying, oh, wait a minute, this is a great therapy. That didn't happen. I think the big change happened when Derek Rossi used our modified RNA
1: Derek Rossi recognised the value of this trick with the letter U, that it was now possible to put mRNA into cells without causing inflammation.
0: Now, their paper had been published and had been largely ignored, quite frankly. Uh, We came across that study and we said, hmm, uh, maybe we could use these modified nucleosides and incorporate them into mRNA. Indeed, that worked. And all of a sudden, everybody in the lab started using this modified mRNA, which we called it, we called it modRNA for short, In fact, the company that I founded, Moderna, that's where the name comes from, ModRNA.
1: And so Moderna was born. But even though the mRNAs were no longer setting off alarm bells once they got inside cells, the challenge of sneaking them into the cells reliably, basically getting them through the cell walls, still remained. The answer was to wrap them up in a special sort of envelope. Moderna co-founder Robert Langer had done research into this very problem decades earlier.
3: Some of that work actually goes back to things that we actually did in our own lab back in the early, mid-1970s. So we actually worked out ways to encapsulate nucleic acids, which are large molecules, RNA is one of them, in, in tiny particles. Everybody told me and my advisors that that was an impossible thing to do uh, for several reasons, that, they, that because these molecules were large, because they're fragile, they'd get destroyed by the solvents we were using. So everybody said it was impossible. Actually, after we published it in the journal Nature in 1976, you know, I got ridiculed. My first nine grants were turned down. I couldn't get a job in a chemical engineering department, which was my home department. No school would hire me. I finally got a job in a nutrition department. And the year after I got it, everybody told me to leave. So people were very, very skeptical of this. That was sort of my contribution that I think helped start a lot of drug delivery things, and then other people took it a lot further.
1: After Langer's initial paper, he and other researchers refined the technique of encapsulating molecules in chemical envelopes so they could survive for longer in the body and sneak larger molecules into cells more easily. In particular, they developed ways to make these chemical envelopes out of fatty molecules called lipids. When you wrap up a drug molecule inside a lipid envelope, the result is known as a lipid nanoparticle.
4: My name is Peter Cullis. I'm a professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology here at uh, University of British Columbia. Uh, and I've been working in the field of uh, lipid nanoparticles, sometimes known as liposomes, for about the last 40 years, actually, starting in about 1980.
1: In 2012, Drew Weissman, who was still working on mRNA vaccines, approached Peter Cullis for help.
4: We were contacted by Drew Weissman at uh, the uh, University of Pennsylvania. Uh, to say, well, I've got a problem. I, I've got these mRNAs which are very good or have potentially very good properties uh, as vaccines. I'd really like to try putting the mRNA in your lipid nanoparticles and inject these intramuscularly and see whether or not there's going to be a good immune response. Uh, so uh, him reaching out was really a pivotal moment.
1: Peter Cullis's method for making lipid nanoparticles was particularly well suited to wrapping up nucleic acids, like DNA and RNA, which happened to be negatively charged.
4: In order to get a RNA or DNA inside one of these nanoparticles, you needed positively charged lipids. What we uh, decided to use was a what we term an ionizable cationic lipid. A cationic, this means positively charged. But ionisable means that at various pH values, it uh, has different charges. And so we got a, about a thousand-fold improvement in potency. So in other words, we were getting much more into the uh, interior of the cell.
1: This research wasn't being done with vaccines in mind. Instead, Cullis's aim was to smuggle mRNA into the liver to treat liver diseases by silencing a particular gene. That's like assassinating some of the messengers back in our castle.
4: We started this work off about 25 years ago. It turned out that uh, we were getting really good targeting to these cells in the liver.
1: But Peter Cullis' lipid nanoparticles could also be used for vaccines.
4: This points out the serendipity aspect of the discovery process. Because we'd been developing these systems for making proteins in the liver, and Drew took that very same system, really and showed that it worked brilliantly as a vaccine.
1: In fact, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine uses mRNA messages with the modified letter U, developed by Drew Weissman and Kathleen Carrico, wrapped up in Peter Cullis' lipid envelopes.
4: Our lipid nanoparticle was used to encapsulate the spike protein messenger RNA, and that's what went into the clinic in March or April last year, and is uh, now being produced at some 3 billion doses for this year, which is a pretty spectacular transition, if you think of it. Unbelievable.
1: BioNTech, a startup founded by Ugar Sahin and Özlem Tureki in 2008, had originally set out to develop cancer therapies using a range of approaches, including mRNA. BioNTech then formed a partnership with Pfizer in 2018 to develop a flu vaccine and quickly switched to making a coronavirus vaccine when the pandemic
0: hit. We begin with breaking news. Pharmaceuticals giant Pfizer has announced that its anti-coronavirus vaccine, developed in partnership with
1: German company BioNTech, is 90% effective. That vaccine has since been administered to hundreds of millions of people, including Peter Cullis.
4: Well, it's a bit surreal to be involved in any way with something as, as large as this. When I got my vaccine, this was a couple of months ago, so I told the nurse that was injecting the, uh, the vaccine, I said, well, you know, I, I had something to do with making this vaccine. And she looked at me like I came from outer space. Uh, she th- I think she was going to reply like, yeah, and I married to Brad Pitt or something along those lines.
1: <laughs> but there's another player in this story whose role is not widely appreciated, the US government. Moderna was founded to pursue mRNA therapies of all kinds, To begin with, it was not particularly focused on vaccines, says Derek Rossi.
0: No, vaccines were not on the table. There are so many different aspects of biology that you can work on. When you can affect so much biology and impact so many different areas of human health, what do you work on first? Well, Moderna's approach was, well, let's just try to work on everything.
1: But in 2013, Moderna was awarded $25 million by DARPA, the research arm of the US military, to work on the development of mRNA vaccines for both military and civilian use. You've heard of DARPA, right?
2: DARPA, or the Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency, was established in 1958 in response to the Soviet Union's launch of the beach ball-sized satellite called Sputnik that was launched on October 4, 1957.
0: You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite, one of the great scientific feats of the age.
2: The US was caught in a strategic surprise, and they formed DARPA with a singular mission to create and prevent those kinds of strategic surprises. And the agency has been responsible for the internet, originally called the ARPANET, miniaturized GPS, Turn right at the next laser technology, and many others.
1: This is Regina Dugan, who was director of DARPA at the time. She remembers the meeting in 2010 when she made the decision to fund research into mRNA vaccines.
2: Imagine a small nondescript office building in Arlington, Virginia, a decidedly not fancy conference room walled by whiteboards with some of the best, most daring scientists and engineers in the world in it. And as part of our review of potential new programs, a program manager, his name was Dan Wattendorf, who I believe is one of the unsung heroes in this journey. He asks two important what-if questions. What if a novel pathogen causes a global pandemic? The world is forced to stand still and we cannot wait three to 10 years for a vaccine. We need something faster. And what if we could use mRNA injected directly into the body to elicit vaccine level protein production and solve that problem, get a vaccine much faster? And if we develop the platform technology, once we have the sequence for the protein, we'll be ready to go. That was the idea that he pitched. And you should keep in mind that at that time, there were far more critics than there were believers. They cited the lack of evidence that it would work. And Dan cited the lack of evidence that it wouldn't work. And he argued, if it works, someday it will matter. And that day has come.
1: Dan Wattendorf, a program manager at DARPA, won the argument and Moderna was awarded one of the contracts to carry out the work.
2: Dan funded Moderna at a time when I think there were only three people in the company and it was entirely to catalyse this development, the ability to create an mRNA-based vaccine.
1: The researchers who've spent their careers working on mRNA therapies have been vindicated. Katalin Karakow and Drew Weissman are widely expected to win the Nobel Prize for Medicine. But now that the power of mRNA therapies has been so dramatically demonstrated, researchers in the field are already working to apply the technology to other diseases.
0: I believe that almost all of the vaccine industry will move to mRNA vaccines. When you go for your flu vaccine in two, three years, you're going to get an mRNA vaccine. So I think vaccines, it's, it's a given. It's safe. It's efficacious, it's fast. Of course, I'm interested in all the genetic diseases because you could potentially apply this to 6,000 different genetic diseases. Cancer, it's got a lot of great application for cancer and cancer therapy.
3: At Moderna, some of the exciting things that we're looking at are personalized cancer vaccines. What if you could take some of the patient's cancer cells and create a vaccine based on messenger RNA to destroy that cancer. I mean, that's one that's very exciting. You could have vaccines for just about anything.
4: I mean, you're going to see vaccines for influenza, for HIV, for rabies. All of these things are coming down the path. There are 200,000 people a year born with sickle cell anemia in sub-Saharan
6: Africa. We're hoping to cure sickle cell anemia with a single intravenous injection. That, to me, is groundbreaking.
3: There's clinical trials going
4: on with AstraZeneca, treating heart disease. The possibilities for everything from Alzheimer's to Huntington's.
0: And then some of the more fringe things that I'm passionate about, for example, snakebite. Snake bite. kills 125,000 people a year, usually in Maines, another 400,000 in underdeveloped countries.
4: There's really a revolutionary technology. The possibilities here are kind of endless. It's fairly unlimited. Any kind of
3: therapy is possible. But before we get too
1: carried away, my colleague Natasha Loder sounds a note of caution.
5: I think one of the errors that we're in danger of making is that because mRNA vaccines have worked so spectacularly, that the therapeutics will work as well. And I think it's worth looking back at some of the problems that Moderna had run into before COVID-19 came along. What was really interesting was, in two thousand and seventeen, it had to abandon work on a drug that it was developing, and what seems to be the case is that they're still having problems with immune reactions, and you know just because A vaccine is able to work at a very low dose and not trigger some kind of immune response that's problematic. It doesn't mean that you're going to be able to introduce mRNA in the quantities you need to create a therapy. By and large, this is a technology that's still emerging.
1: But the fact remains that even if it's just used to make vaccines, mRNA is an amazingly powerful technique. Although it appeared to come out of nowhere in 2020, it's actually been decades in the making, with different contributions along the way from many different research groups. It's a reminder of the unexpected zigzag path that new ideas often take on their journey from the laboratory to the wider world. It's also a reminder that ideas intended to solve one problem, like treating liver disease or making stem cells, can end up helping to solve another one, like suppressing a global pandemic. Innovation, in other words, is messy. Drew Weissman.
6: It involves many, many different people. I can't remember a time when a single person suddenly said, oh, I'm going to invent aspirin, and they went out and made aspirin.
3: It just doesn't work that way. It it takes a lot of people.
1: Moderna co-founder Robert
3: Langer. It takes a lot of money, uh, you know, a lot of smart people, It's Thomas Edison's point about 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. You know, and that's what I think companies like Moderna and and others have done. It's really been a tremendous team effort of knocking down obstacle after obstacle.
1: Moderna co-founder
0: Derek Rossi. It requires so many different skill sets and a huge ecosystem. It requires, you know, investment. It requires commitment and a lot of patience. And luckily, there's people on Earth that are willing to commit that time and energy and effort because it's important for us.
1: Regina Dugan hopes this experience will catalyze a new era of innovation in healthcare.
2: I believe this pandemic is our Sputnik moment. And just as Sputnik ignited the space age, I believe the coronavirus can inspire a health age.
3: We choose to go to the moon in this decade
0: and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
2: Humans have proved over and again at critical moments that we have the ability to set a new course with new tools and new technology, resilience and tenacity. We expect to see a time when no one waits on an organ transplantation list. We expect to see a time when each of us is healthy to our last breath, when we have different treatments for the many millions who suffer from treatment-resistant depression. These are just samples of the kinds of advances we could have in a health age.
0: In
1: the next episode, we'll look at another example of how innovation in one field can unexpectedly help solve problems in another. I'm a big fan of video games, but even if you're not, video game technology has changed your world in ways you're probably unaware of. You can hear the full story on the next episode of Game Changers. Thanks for listening to this episode. It was a Tempo and Talker production for The Economist. The producer was Tom Pooley and the executive producer was Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage, in London, this is The Economist.